I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I feel like this episode is a uh, a monumental occurrence. I think it's the first time I've released an episode sooner than one week from the last one. <laughs> uh, it wasn't even intentional either. It just kind of worked out like that. Uh, we are in Stanley, Idaho right now, where uh, it's so, so beautiful here in the Sawtooth Range. We were supposed to come here sooner. I think I mentioned this last week, but there was a ton of smoke. Um, so we waited it out in the very northern tip of Idaho for a while and then made it down here. Uh, we had a good it's like four or five days of clear skies, but it looks like the smoke has once again returned kind of feels like there is nowhere in the west that you can be at the moment without a ton of smoke that is just uh, how things are at the moment um anyway there is a really awesome little community library in stanley that i don't actually think is even open right now because of covid but they have all this outdoor seating and outdoor outlets and free wi-fi that you can use all day and sit outside under a big umbrella and do a ton of work, which is honestly a van lifer's dream. Um, to have a cool spot to do that, to not have to be inside, it's super nice. And uh, yeah, just figured, don't know when I'm going to get something like this again, so figured I will bring you another podcast, because I have so many saved up, and they're all so great. Um, today's episode is with Kylie Macbeth, who... I'm very excited to bring back to the show. I guess the show is monumental in more ways than one. This is the first time that I'm having someone return to the podcast. I have since recorded other episodes with people who've been on the podcast before, but this is the first one I'm releasing. So it's cool. It's cool to have cycles. I'm sure if you've listened to the show, you know how into the concept of time as a cycle I am. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to have people back on the podcast and see time in that way, what has transpired since we last had a, com uh, a conversation. Uh, and this conversation was so good and so comfortable and so fluid. I always listen back to my podcasts and I don't edit them a lot, but I edit them slightly. But honestly, this really didn't need any. It just felt like Kylie and I were on the same page, which we are, which I think so many of us are, like all of you listening. Uh, before we get into today's episode, I am very much related to this conversation. I wanted to talk a bit about the nervous system, which will um, recur as a theme in some episodes in the future. I'm um, not going to get into the science of it right now, but I just wanted to get into some sort of broad experiences and things that I've been thinking about recently related to the nervous system. 
Um, I definitely lived for my entire life up until a few years ago, having no ability to recognize stress or anxiety. I didn't understand how I was basically living under a constant state of stress, but I was so disconnected to my body, so disconnected um, from my intuition that I really thought that what turned out to be a very high level of anxiety and stress, I just thought that was like normal baseline how people feel all the time. And I didn't understand that when something actually stressful was going on, why it put me so far over the deep end. Like I would just get really sick or just totally freak out. Um, and I think it's because I was operating already at such a high level that when something was actually stressful, like I was already so high up there, I had no ability to calm myself down, to regulate my nervous system, to feel safe, to feel secure. Um, already I wasn't feeling that way. And then when something put me over the edge, it just felt like I was incapacitated in many ways. Um, I even think I was having some form of like anxiety attacks, but I didn't recognize it. I just sort of felt like I felt crazy. I just felt really intense in all sorts of ways, emotionally, physically, etc. And this question of like, well, how do we locate our intuition? How do we locate our discernment? How do we recognize what is safe and what feels secure to our bodies, to our nervous system, etc.? This has come up a lot. Um, I was in a live Zoom call yesterday with a bunch of my Patreon supporters, um, which was so great. We did a first, our first book club. We read a wonderful book called Breeding Sweetgrass, and we all read it together over the course of a month and then met together uh, to discuss it via Zoom, um, which is a perk available to anyone that signs up to my Patreon at $10 a month and up, along with other fun things that I'll talk about later. Um, anyway, this, this idea, I mean, it's come up on the podcast, I feel like, a ton, but it's very top of mind because we were all talking about it yesterday. Um, and the question is always asked, you know, how, how do you find self-trust? Like, what does that feel like? How do you figure out who you are? How do you figure out what your gifts are? How do you, how do you locate yourself in yourself instead of sourcing that identity from elsewhere? And, I feel like maybe sometimes we ask this question over and over again because we're misunderstanding how we find the answer. That somehow it's like this logical or intellectual path, the cerebral path toward finding balance and, and stability and safety and security. And it's just really not. I mean, I'm definitely someone that tries to like solve all problems by analyzing them and find all solutions by logically entertaining all the options. And all of those things are very helpful. It's useful to think about things in those terms. But when it comes to nervous system regulation, like that is a bodily experience. And I think, you know, the only way that I was really able to come to terms with this is, I mean, I first of all, changed and altered the, the my entire life. So I basically removed my job, my relationships, my house. I was sort of catapulted into this entirely new environment, which, you know, I was going to say just so happened to be a lot more relaxing, but I also obviously chose 
these things. So I was living alone. I was living in a really beautiful place. I was making a conscious decision to focus more on what actually interested me. And um, instead of what I sort of saw the plan for myself to be up until that point. And I feel like what started to happen then and what has continued to happen now, what increases for me now is, you know, I know what it feels like now to be relaxed. I have enough space in my life. I have good, healthy relationships. I love what I do in terms of a quote unquote career or just fulfilling what I feel like is my role in the world, in a community. I've gotten enough opportunities to feel what it feels like to be relaxed and safe and calm. Um, one example that I'm sure I've mentioned before is right now on this van trip, um, it's becoming very obvious to me having, you know, we're in the woods for four or five days. My nervous system, I feel like, is at the place where it wants to be. My senses are alive. I'm able to breathe. I can think clearly. I can immerse my physical body in water and sun and earth in a way that feels very nourishing, very calming. I think the only time that I realized they really ever felt this in the past was I would like go on a tropical vacation or something. And like my breathing pattern almost felt. I mean, it almost felt like I wasn't breathing. It felt like I was like a corpse, like that's how relaxed I was. And I would sit by the pool, right? It was like, okay, that is relaxation. And I definitely don't feel that in my day-to-day -day life, but I didn't think much of it. I didn't think much more of it than that. I felt like, oh, that feeling is reserved for like sitting at a pool in Hawaii. Um, but now I'm very much aware of what that sensation feels like, about what that corpse-like <laughs> calm thing uh, feels like in my body. And I recognize that I feel it a lot more now. It's becoming much more of my normal life. The the sort of stressed out, anxious part is the minority now. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm in the woods now for X amount of time, even where we've been staying in Colorado is super chill, even here in this town in Stanley, pretty chill as far as a, you know, as far as civilization goes. Um, but how I feel when I emerge from the woods is so intensely stressful and overwhelming. You know, I can feel it in my body. It leaks out into all other parts of my life. Like normal work tasks become increasingly more difficult. I start to argue with people for no reason. I get extremely frustrated at very small things. And I think one, that's just because civilization is really fucking annoying, um, but also because my senses are so heightened for a very relaxing, balanced, natural state that when I keep my uh, sensation, I mean, I'm not doing it intentionally, but when my senses remain at that level and I put myself back into this very noisy, very loud, very distracting type of an environment, I'm like on fucking overload. And this has happened enough times, especially this year on the band trip. I didn't, re I didn't realize it as much last year. I think partially, I don't know. I think, I think partially because the world wasn't so crazy. Obviously, COVID has, COVID and the election have sort of put an additional layer of tension in the air that didn't exist before. So you can just feel like, just feel the tension all over the place in every place that we go. Except the woods, of course. Um, 
but coming back into society like this has happened enough times and I've had enough breakdowns to where I finally feel like I mean I am already doing this I was kind of doing this unconsciously but now consciously being like I need to construct my life around the health of my nervous system I need to literally make life choices that are dependent upon my level of happiness versus my level of stress and anxiety. Because I know firsthand that operating on that level of stress and anxiety, on that level of a lack of safety, a lack of security, I made myself physically ill. This is just what happens. It's a bodily process that manifests in a bodily result. And I got super sick. Not to mention I was miserable. I mean, I was sick in my body, but I was also sick in my mind. I was just unhappy and kind of dead. Um, and so it feels empowering now to be able to be like, fuck that. I'm not going to live in a city. <laughs> like, I need to live in a small town. I need to spend a lot of time in nature and I need to not feel bad about that. There's a total patriarchal, cultural, societal overlay on all of us that pressures us into living in this type of a civilized environment and guilt trips us and shames us if we can't handle it because we there's this lie that all these other people out there are dealing with it just fine no they're just acclimated to it but inside they're fucking dying too they just don't know it yet it's like there's this i feel this weird sense of shame of like oh man i just need to like take care of my body and live in a place and with people that make me feel good and that should be normal that should be like the fact that we're not all doing that the fact that that's not the number one priority you know in choosing a job in choosing a home life in choosing relationships like how does my body feel or do I feel safe do I feel calm can I breathe the fact that that's not the norm is so upsetting and so gross and so destructive and uh obviously you know, we all need to get to the place where we even know how to distinguish between those two spaces, the one of a lack of regulation and regulation. And I recognize that that's really challenging. But once we figure that out, like we have to honor it. I mean, we don't have to. <laughs> I'm encouraging you to. I feel like we need to in order to crawl out of these unhealthy environments that we've been told are normal. There's just no way. There's no way to live in this world, the conventional world, and not get sick or depressed or angry, you know, in a very unhealthy way. It's absurd, the, the world that we are expected to live in. And I can say that pretty confidently, having removed myself from that world enough. So that's what I wanted to say. I've been feeling that a lot recently. I... I don't know really what to do. I don't, I don't, like I have to go to LA in a week or so because I have to go to my storage unit and figure out what I'm going to take with me to Colorado. Like there are, and there are people that I love that live in cities. Both my parents live in New York City. So like, okay, I'm going to have to go to New York City at some point. I don't really know how I'm going to do that. I know I can't fully, you know, eject myself from the regular world, but certainly doing everything I can in my normal life and when I have to go enter into an environment like that to take care of myself and to not feel badly about it, to not feel like a baby, to not feel like I'm weak because I have to like 
do some sort of exercise to prepare myself for that and then like a cool down once I'm out of it. Um, that's normal, you know, expecting us to live in these stressful environments that try to keep us from knowing ourselves and what feels good is abnormal. That is not okay. That is wrong. And I say this all the time, but it makes it a lot easier for an individual to do this, to enter into this type of process if they see other people doing the same. So it's not just selfish. It's not just for you. It's for the people who are watching you or who could be inspired by you or the kids that you're raising or the friends that you have or the people that are watching you from afar. I remember there was this girl, I forget her name. I worked with her at a company in my early 20s and um, she at some point just decided to leave and go to Hawaii and she was living on this like regenerative farm there. And I remember following her on Instagram and social media and sort of seeing what she was up to and I wasn't close to her. I wasn't actually talking to her. I just saw what she was doing and it resonated with me on some deep level that I wasn't totally conscious of and wasn't totally ready, ready to accept. Like, fuck, I want to just quit everything and go to Hawaii. Like that looks amazing. But knowing she did it, knowing she was doing it, even of course I ended up telling her this, um, many years later after I did exit out of my life and live my authentic life, I reached out to her and I thanked her. And of course, from her end, she thinks she doesn't have it all figured out. And, you know, she's definitely confused and feels guilty about opting out of what most people want her to do with her life. But regardless, on my end, just seeing her do it, the possibility that one could do it, I always thought about it. And I'd be lying if I, you know, said that that wasn't one of the key sort of inspiring people and ways of living life that carried me for a long time. So even if you don't think you have it all figured out or that your life wouldn't inspire someone else, trust me, a regular random girl from Pennsylvania quit her job and went and lived on this farm in Hawaii and I think was only supposed to be there for like a short period of time and then decided to stay longer. It was just like, fuck y'all, this is what I'm doing. It was so powerful for me. So don't underestimate the extent to which your life is affecting other people's lives and plus it just makes it easier if you do it someone else does it you know i mean this podcast for me like all these people that i've been meeting through the podcast through the book club this makes it easier for me too it makes it easier for me to live this life it makes me it makes it easier for me to feel grounded in the decisions that i've made and the community that i know is possible so yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Um, I feel like I talk about Patreon all the time, so I'm just going to skip it this time. But if you're interested in uh, supporting the podcast and meeting like-minded people, head over to patreon.com slash learn more about it. I'm going to play you in today with a song called Geminid Meteor Shower by Hidden Tapes. And um, I want you to play this really loudly in your headphones, in your car, Wherever you're at, just like be still for a second and just really feel into it. Maybe it won't have the same effect on you that it did for me. But, you know, in finding our intuition and in finding safety and security, because this is a bodily process, we have to engage in it in these sort of more creative ways. So 
like I said, obviously, one great way is to go out and spend a bunch of time in nature and see how you feel and then compare everything to that. Music for me is another way to do this. I can listen to something um, and I can be transported into a place where my body feels good. It feels alive. It feels conscious and aware and grounded. So you feel how you feel when you're listening to that song, when you're sitting under a tree, when you're dancing, and then you compare everything to that. So in asking the question of how do we find our intuition, like where is the place where you feel the most safe? Where's the place you feel the best, feel the most yourself? It doesn't have to be like a career, but just the moment. Do you take baths in the morning? Like what is that feeling for you when you're doing a thing that feels good? And then keep doing it. Notice how it feels. Keep cultivating that. And then anytime you're doing anything else, compare it to that. Does it feel like that or does it feel fucked up? Does it feel unsafe? Does it feel itchy and uncomfortable? This song for me is just kind of esoteric in nature and more sound even than music. But there's something about it that just really lights me up and makes me feel good. So I hope it does the same for you. But if it doesn't, I'm sure you have a song or something you can listen to, or even a person or a podcast. It's another place that you can definitely find regulation. Just do more of that. Recognize how your body feels and then compare everything back to that feeling. Enjoy the song. Enjoy this conversation. I will talk to you on the other end.
you're the first person that I'm having back on the podcast. Wow. Yeah. And you were like, I think the first episode I released too. So really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wild. What an honor. I can't believe that. I know. Like a year and a half ago, like nothing's really changed, you know? Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Same, same. We're just going to have this similar conversation. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Um, so I am really excited to have you on the show again. And, uh, yeah, I feel like even a lot's changed because we hung out in person a year ago. Yeah. So lots of changes. So much has changed in one year. It's wild what one year can do. 2019 to 2020 was, I mean, it's been monumental. Yeah. 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 Collectively, personally, I kept kind of describing it as like, and I still feel like we're in this a little bit, but like, you know, when you're on a roller coaster and you're just like going up and up and up and up and up and you're like waiting for the drop, but like the drop never comes. (laughs) It just like keeps cycling or like trap music or something Mm -hmm. where like the beat just never drops. It's such Uh, a, it's such an intense feeling. It's exhausting over time without the drop, without the, okay, now we're back. Right. Yeah. So I just listened to your episode that you did on your podcast. I actually think Mm -hmm. I talked about it in the intro to one of my podcasts a couple episodes back because it was so, it's just so nice and refreshing to hear people talking about such similar things to what I'm talking about. And maybe even more specifically, uh, women talking about femininity, (laughs) um, which I definitely feel like has been something I've done such a deep dive into over the past couple of years and especially recently. Um, and, uh, I know, and even, even that feeling of like being and feeling so comforted by and excited and inspired by other women talking about the same thing, I feel like is in and of itself kind of, unconventional and controversial yeah. because I feel like women are so often in competition. Absolutely. Well, and I yeah. think that's, you know, born out of the system that we've been living in for thousands of years yeah. is for women in order to source security and safety have had to be in competition for the resources. And those resources have come through historically through men. Now, obviously that is shifting, but I still think there's a lot of intergenerational uh, epigenetic DNA in place to create that competition and that unconscious desire or sourcing of security and safety, love, validation from something outside of ourselves. Right. So it's so deep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'd love for you to just like talk as much as you're comfortable talking about you've had such a major change in your life um, in the yeah. past year. And I feel like something that I definitely struggled with and I feel like I hear a lot of people our age struggle with is this sort of like committing to something and making a decision about something and feeling like it was an aligned decision and then getting to the point where we realized, okay, now it's time for me to make a change or now it's time for me to grow or move past something and feeling, I'm curious if you ever felt a sense of guilt about that or shame of like, well, but I kind of said I was doing this. And especially those of us with a public platform then being like, Oh, actually now I'm going to make this other decision. Yeah. It's a really great question. And I'd say that going through the process in the beginning, I felt shame, 
but I'm not sure I would only correlate that shame to, um, to just the relationship rupture or the ending. Um, I think that I was carrying a lot of shame and a lot of blame. And I think because of the role I played in, in my, in, in the relational dynamic of the infantilized little girl, the one who needed to be saved, that there was always something wrong with me and me choosing to leave that dynamic was actually me stepping forward into my power, into something else, into what my soul needed, what, what the next initiation was for me into womanhood. And of course I felt shame because, you know, of course I I don't want to hurt people. You know, we always have that too. It's like, we don't want to hurt people. We don't want to break their hearts. We don't want to, but you know, all of that started to just wash away and, to be honest, I feel zero guilt, zero shame, zero anything, because that rupture catalyzed the deepest descent I've ever taken in my life to liberate me from, from unconscious hooks and trauma templates that were keeping me so small, so stuck, and so afraid. And I wouldn't trade what I've been given by saying yes and trusting myself for anything. Yeah. So I feel zero. When people ask me, do you feel bad? I'm like, no, I'm like, <laughs> I feel the furthest thing from regret. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like getting on a mountaintop and being like, everyone needs to do this work to liberate themselves from, from these deeper shackles of shame and fear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's such an interesting point too, because I've also been asked that question and feel the same way. Like my feelings also of pain or of grief or of fear do not equal regret, you know? And, and also that, you know, before we jump off that cliff, like the whole point of it is that we don't, we don't know what's down there. We don't, you know, if we leave the Island, we don't know if there's going to be another one. Like that process in and of itself, I think has to be fearful by definition, I think there's no reference point. Yeah. I almost think of it like this morning when I was meditating, I saw a diving board and then like a big giant, like ocean. Well, like dark and the diving board was like the reference point. It's like the last grasping thing we're holding on to for safety and security is this. We have this reference point of, of maybe certainty or how we want it to look our lives, but it's like, it's not in alignment. So we got to jump and we don't know what's in the water, but we just have to trust that this is, this is the way this is, this is the invitation. This is what's being asked of me. Um, which requires a lot of not only for me, when, when people are like, well, how do you make that jump? And I'm like, Oh, it's such a, it's such a hard question to answer because it felt so deep in my core, like soul knowing, And I know that sounds kind of like, uh, I don't know, glittery or maybe, but it's just like, there is that deeper knowing that we have access to. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I bet that you having gone through a sort of like transformative dark night of the soul period before. Yeah. I feel like once you go through at least one situation like that, where you feel these like deep feelings of unease or pain or grief, but simultaneously recognize that you are where you're supposed to be, that 
it makes all future situations like that feel a little bit easier to integrate. So true. And I'm so grateful for the first one. And I don't know about you, but after the first one, I was like, oh, I hope I'm done with that because that was gnarly. (laughs) And then going through the last one, I say that this last one was deeper, way deeper, but my capacity was way wider to be able to hold that and integrate it in a way that um, didn't feel as overwhelming to the system as the first dark night. So yeah, I would agree. Yeah. (laughs) After one, it's like, okay, we can survive this. We're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily change anything about what's occurring, but certainly just that faith of like, okay, I remember that time when I was just like in the darkness of the tunnel and I didn't know if there was light, what the light looked like when it was coming. Um, and just having to like sit in that faith that hopefully like something would change eventually just makes that sort of, I mean, not only does it make it more almost easier to bear, but it also, I think, makes me feel more motivated to find the meaning in that darkness and the meaning in the unknown, you know, or the yeah. beauty in it even. Absolutely. Yeah. For me too. It's always, okay, what's the purpose? Right. Like, okay, we're going to find some meaning here because if I don't find some meaning, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Yeah. Right. It's like, this has to have a reason. <laughs> And usually it does, you know, the soul brings us on the initiation we need in order to liberate us into the next version or the next iteration of our journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned the thing about the diving board. There's this really, really interesting little film. Uh, It's on that, it's on a news site, Eon, I think, A-E-I-O-N. And it's this, it's just a camera that's set up on like an Olympic diving board And there's all these people, regular civilians, that walk up and decide if they're going to jump or not. And it's super Mm -hmm. high and super scary. And there's no commentary. You just totally are watching for 10 minutes. All these different people come up and go through this process of like, some of them go go up and just just go right away. Some of them are with someone else and they're negotiating who's going to go first. (laughs) Like some of them stand there for like minutes on end and freak out and start walking down. And then some will walk back up and be like, okay, no, I'm going to do it now. Um, But it's such a, I mean, I think it's symbolic of so many different things. I think it's symbolic of like our fear of death uh, Mm -hmm. and maybe more specifically this whole idea of control, which um, maybe moving into this whole like femininity conversation, how I felt like those situations in which I've jumped off the diving board, jumped off the cliff, left the island are inherently lacking in control. They have to be. Yeah. Um, It's completely release. Yeah. Complete surrender. Yeah. And do you feel, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about like the nature of control within and in relationship to this sort of patriarchal environment? <laughs> you know, just yeah. briefly. Yeah, just, hey, just drop your thoughts on that. <laughs> I think, you know, living in this this patriarchal power dynamic and, and navigating this this system and and really having to look at the layers and the subtleties and the nuance of how it's all kind of created this big knot of one might say oppression. Um, and yes, I would agree oppression, but also just a deep disconnect from body, 
mm-hmm. disconnect from from instinct, from intuition, because we've been steeped in a in a system in a culture that represses, degrades, exploits, and dominates the feminine in all. And what that creates is this toxic hierarchy between the masculine and the feminine, and the masculine being, um, you know, both in men and women, or however you identify in the gender spectrum, but for the most part, there has been a superiority around male in our culture and a degradation of female. Um, and this creates this toxic hier- hierarchy that we see in um, not only within ourselves, we might see the inner patriarch and the, the, the little girl within and how we treat ourselves or how we treat our own inner feminine, but then we also see this play out in our relational dynamics as well. And this toxic hierarchy keeps the feminine, especially women, shackled to shame and fear, to I am less than, I am broken, there's something wrong with me. And the fear element comes in from not feeling competent or capable of standing on our own two feet to source the things we need. And um, that might be safety, security, but that's also love. It's also the vulnerable side of this as well. And that's where most women are the most vulnerable because we crave love, We crave connection. We crave being met, being seen, of course, deeper intimacy. And that's where I think there's this easy hook into trying to get that need met um, in places where it's not necessarily going to be met. Um, And because of the shame and fear, we disconnect from our true power. We disconnect from the body. We disconnect from true self. And then we become unconsciously enslaved to what Maya Luna calls the inverted king paradigm or the psychopathic, sociopathic, narcissistic consciousness that has kind of been ruling the planet for what feels like a very long time. So it creates a Stockholm dynamic. And that Stockholm syndrome dynamic is I'm a broken, feared, fragile little girl, basically, and I need a savior or something external to to save me, to heal me, to show me the way, to give me validation, give me worth, give me um, safety, security. And that specific outsourcing or an external locus of control keeps us disconnected from our internal world. And we're seeing so much of this kind of bubble up to the surface in this kind of reclamation process of the feminine is we're coming back home to body, coming back home to self, coming back home to the feminine and doing our work to heal the intergenerational trauma, ancestral trauma, historical, um, collective, institutional, like all of this on every, every single layer through our lineage. And what that process is, is we're unhooking from, from this, system that has been built off of the suppression, exploitation, degradation, and domination of the feminine principle. And that's deep work. I mean, because we're unhooking from quite a knot there from capitalism, colonization, um, racism, like it goes, it spans the whole spectrum of looking at how this kind of system is playing a role um, and interfering with our secure attachment to self, but our possibility to connect and have deeper intimacy with other until the feminine is healed. It's not possible. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I find myself stuck or frustrated or some word like that often because there's these two things going on for me where it's like one, I recognize why we have this disconnect from the feminine. I recognize why we have these, um, desires and, and we rely upon like control and power and ownership and all of these different things. However, I feel like if for me personally, if I were to define feminine power in one word, it would be vulnerability. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we enact and practice vulnerability in a culture and a context that takes advantage of that? You know, um, I, mean, <laughs> I have such deep grief around what you just said. Yeah. Like yesterday I was just crying under a willow tree because I'm so angry that the feminine can't be fully expressed in this culture in a way that feels safe and nourishing. And yes, we can begin to create this by having these conversations and doing this, this work, but you're right. How do you enter a world that has exploited the very thing that is your essence? Yeah. Like it's like, it's terrifying. Yeah. Right. And then it happens again, even when you're conscious or you look back at the gestalt of where it started in your timeline and you're like, wow, that is so much grief I'm carrying for not feeling safe to be in my full essence on this planet. And so you're right. Like, how do you create that? Well, I think a really important piece to that puzzle is not only doing somatic work and reconnecting to your body and your womb, but accessing your sacred rage of like, having a new bar of an integrity for how anyone in your field relates to the feminine and yourself, which of course you have to create that bar for yourself where you're kind of making sure that you're not, um, or that you haven't internalized the abuser of this culture, the supremacy culture. And most women have, you know, it's created an internalized war between, um, the internalized patriarch and the inner feminine. So until we do that work, which takes time and, and also creates, and also is, um, it's necessary to have these conversations, but also some other support and healing with women. And, um, the body work has been imperative for me. I'm not sure what your journey is with somatic specifically and really nervous system regulation, but until I could move out of the freeze response of my nervous system, because for so long, I'd say that most of my energy was like from the heart up and I didn't have access from the heart down in my body because it didn't feel safe to embody those parts because of it wasn't in the system safe to be fully grounded and anchored on this planet. And over time and doing the work to process and grieve and go deeper into my body, I've now been able to fully land my feet on the earth and trust that I've not only got my own back, but that. I'm okay. Like I'm unconditionally okay. Um, so yeah, sacred rage, yeah. I would say is important in this process of reclaiming the feminine. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we're, or at least I felt like I was in this strange double bind because not only was there this understanding or recognition of what parts of like powerful femininity were not being embraced by me, but just completely forgotten and rejected by the culture at large. But then also there's so many aspects of that, that are not just, you know, broadly culturally shamed, but also I think 
feared by other women and not supported by other women. Right. So it's like, here I am talking about wanting to be more vulnerable, wanting to like relinquish control, wanting to trust and am met with, I think a, a misunderstanding of, and just a fear of, of a lot of those things, especially on behalf of women, that those things are like somehow inherently, um, abusive or degrading. Um, and, trying to figure out how Mm. to, I think that for me is where the sort of somatic stuff has come in because it's like in a world, like I had to find discernment in my body yeah, because I couldn't necessarily like consult the culture at large about like what was safe and secure, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's true. Safety is being able to be so attuned to your body to discern what is, what is safe and what isn't within yourself instead of it needing to be an externally sourced, um, process, which is internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. Um, interesting with, with women specifically, do you have any examples like of, yeah, well, I guess more broadly, I think, and I always, it's funny how you sometimes have this like very sort of quiet, intuitive feeling about something, but it's like precognitive. Like you can't totally understand why you feel a certain way. Um, I went to a very like feminist college. Um, and I feel like we've just grown up in this interesting world with like me too. And all of these different movements around what it means to be a powerful woman, what powerful femininity looks like. Yeah. And I think for a long time I was sort of hearing maybe directly, but also indirectly this rhetoric that like to be a powerful woman meant to be more like a man. So to embody masculinity, because that is again, like the only thing that we Mm -hmm. recognize as quote unquote powerful. And there was something that always felt off about that to me and, and something that always felt really unfair to masculinity and really unfair to men. Um, and I think I came from an interesting perspective of having a gay father who exhibited a very unique type of masculinity, Mm -hmm. right? He was both vulnerable and sensitive and emotionally fluent, but also by far one of the most sort of courageous, brave, um, strong Mm -hmm. people that I knew. Uh, so I think that probably like that, that's where the little clue in my head was always like this whole, I don't know, dismissing of masculinity or trying to have femininity, femininity replicate masculinity in some way Mm. is missing the point. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I I think that's where, I mean, I have a wonderful community of like-minded people now, but I think throughout a lot of my twenties, I felt like the way that I wanted to be powerful was not necessarily the way that the culture was telling me I could be or should be powerful. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the, the, I, I so agree with you in terms of, women having to become men or kind of move into that hyper-masculine space in order to source freedom or safety or security in our system. I think that's actually been inherently the the only way to do so yeah, because agreed. the power, you know, in terms of money hasn't necessarily been available to make choice or have agency in the system without becoming hyper-masculine or moving into that guarded right. masculine space. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. And, and I don't, I, I don't think that's actually fulfilling for a woman. Yeah. You know, I, 
speaking on my own journey, uh, having been in my guarded masculine for my whole life until probably within the last year is deeply, um, unfulfilling and disconnected and, um, just disembodied. And I don't want that for women. So what is the balance between coming back into, into union with the feminine and the masculine principles within ourselves? And I think that requires every human to do their work around healing the masculine and feminine, because there's been so much distortion around those two principles, not only within ourselves, but also in our culture. Um, so for me, I think when I look at what is a powerful woman, I think power is the most distorted word on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like what we think is power is not like, I think is false power basically. Um, because I mean, what do we deem powerful? We deem status, money, um, looks, beauty, like all of that is deemed in our culture to be powerful. And, in this system, that does garner choice, which gives us power, of course. So it's like, so we're trying to look at it like, what are we making these all mean, of course? Like, but I don't think true power is sourced from something external. I think it's an internally sourced um, knowing or internal congruency or internal order that makes us feel in our power. And that's not power over that's power with, you know? So it's like, how do we kind of untangle that word and actually restore its, its essence, if you will, from being so tied up in this patriarchal knot? Because we're all seeking power, right? Most of us are seeking external power so that we can finally get to the place where we're free. So we can have and feel joy or fulfillment, but we're seeking the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. At least it feels like that for me. Right. And the power, I just had a whole conversation about this. Um, like to me, it's very clear that power, like power is everywhere. Power is in nature power. Like there are different power dynamics taking place all over the, all over. There's like, you know, it's a weird thing because I think there's some forms of like transactional relationships that can be really harmful and codependent. But at the end of the day, it's very easy to see how we're all sort of transacting with one another. We're all feeding and giving and taking it. Right. Um, and there's always going to be some type of power tied up in that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think for me, I feel like the only way to like get a hold of these things is to stop pretending as if or feeling as if power in and of itself is bad. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Because yeah. if it's clean, then it's great. Right. Yeah. Right. But if it's manipulative, if it's exploited, like that's where we get into trouble mm-hmm. with it. That's the right. shadow side of power. But if it's maybe not in the shadow and brought into the light, then we can work with it and it can be a more harmonious, interdependent relational dynamic within ourselves, but also with everybody else around us. But we haven't been taught that. You know, we've all been trying to source and hook in and 
create safety from, from other and <laughs> in a right. system that is completely disconnected us from ourselves and our true right. source of knowing and power. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'd love to talk a little bit about, I just was recording another podcast this morning and I mentioned this story. Um, I was basically in like nonstop back to back monogamous relationships from like 16 to 27, basically my entire adult life. And I definitely got a lot of sort of criticism, I think, during that time of, you know, around codependency, around like, you don't, you know, you don't know how to be by yourself. You don't know how to be independent, blah, blah, blah. And when I finally sort of like exited out of that period of time in my life, I was very passionate about like, okay, like I'm going to learn how to be independent and be on my own and like not have to depend on anyone and, you know, live by myself. And I remember walking into therapy feeling like I figured it all out, you know, <laughs> and I, I expressed this whole rallying cry to her and she's like, well, uh, I think there's something to that. I think for sure, like being able to stand in your own power, being independent, recognizing who you are outside of other people is very important. But actually what I think is maybe even the more meaningful task here is for you to learn how to uh, accept love in a healthy way, how to depend on people in a healthy way, how to uh, exist within a community that actually sees you and supports you for who, for who you are. And I heard that. And then I had this moment um last year, early last year, I was on a trip. I was in Bali and I came home and I'd been with a lot of people and it was such a like beautifully, um, like transformative, but just nourishing experience for me. And I was with people that understood me and who I loved and who loved me. And I came home and I was living alone and I walked into my apartment. It's like cold in January and I just come from Bali and I'm thinking like, I had this immediate sense of like, oh, this kind of sucks. And then this like shame-based, like, but you should be just as happy on your own supporting mm. yourself as you are with, with this group of people. And like in that moment, I recognized like, oh, wow, okay. So what I'm craving here is like to come home to someone who I can eat dinner with, to like cook for people or have food cooked for me, to like sit in a circle with people I love and to laugh and to feel secure. And I realized like those are all in my opinion, feminine qualities and like completely agree we, and and it's hard because it's like, and the reason I brought this up really mm -hmm. is because I wanted you to talk about this, like no man container that you had and like the intersection of like not, uh, uh, learning how to, um, source power from yourself, but also yeah. like making sure that we're not shaming ourselves for needing and wanting love and relationships and community because I think that's like such an integral part of the work, you know? I agree. I completely agree. Um, you know, with the no man diet and thank you for sharing that story. I think it's so important for us to really look at how self-help and self-development has created even more ways to keep us internalizing shame and that we should be isolated, like rugged individualism and that whole narrative has got to go. We're not supposed to walk yeah. this path to like a, alone forever, like community connection, intimacy, like these are core human needs. And, um, I'm so with you in, in the reclamation of community specifically, because I think our culture has turned market and stayed into mother and father as I think as you've all know, 
Nahari, who wrote Sapiens, oh, yeah. how he says that. And I'm just like, yeah, that's exactly what's happened. Family systems have degraded, community has degraded. And it's like, now we're all relying on this external system, which keeps us all hooked into this game and disconnected from Mother Earth, from body, from community, from the feminine, like feminine principle fully. So the No Man Diet Container, I was on a call with Dr. Or no, he's not a doctor. Um, Mark Wolin, the author of um, It's Not Always About You who does mm-hmm. intergenerational trauma. And I was, I was on a call with him and he said, your core organizing pattern that was based off of your relationship with your mother is to, to leave self and psychically jump into somebody else's field, intuit what they want, make them feel good and bring them close. This is how you've sourced safety and security your whole life. And I kind of was like, oh my God, like so grossed out. Like I, like I couldn't even believe it. Like it felt like, you know, when somebody says something to you and you're like, oh my gosh, because then you leave yourself and then you eventually blow things up because you're so disconnected from yourself or your body shuts down and you're exhausted. I'm like, oh yeah. Is it really just that simple? One sentence just described my whole freaking timeline. And I remember being like, Holy crap. I cannot believe how deep this organizing pattern of relating was. And basically his invitation on that call was if you don't do this work to heal this original pattern and to stop sourcing um, attention, validation, your existence through male attention or security or safe, you will I will be having the same conversation with you in two years. And I was like, well, I definitely do not want to be having the same conversation because that's just not for me. Um, so the recommendation was to go on a no man diet. And I don't think he called it that. That's what Kendra Kunov, the woman who I actually did the no man diet container with calls it. And it was at first terrifying like somatically, my nervous system went into complete fight, fight flight mode, like, like full activation. And I was like, what is happening? Like, I'm okay. Like, I know I'm okay. I'm financially supported by myself. I I can resource, but it was just like something so deep was like, you're, you're going to die. Basically (laughs) you're going to die. And a part of me was dying, right? Like the death part, it was the, the part that was feeding off of all of this external um, attention and validation and, and energy really. And one of the things that Mark Wollin had said to me that really kind of also jolted my, my ego back was, was you can't differentiate between a high and love. And I was like, Oh my gosh, is it really like, (laughs) you know, and I was like, shit, that's, that's unfortunate too, because I want to be able to differentiate what's actually true and what's a high. And, and then the the next piece, which I I really want to share, I don't know how we got here, why we're getting here, but it's been coming up a lot for me lately is this statement he made. He said, we're all trying to heal our sad mothers. Like we're all, we're all in addiction trying to heal our sad mothers. And when you look at it through the overlay of patriarchy and how the suppression and repression and degradation of the feminine through our lineage is kind of being played out. And then the children then take it on and try to save my, like, I was just like, oh my gosh, you start to see the whole world 
very differently when you see that pattern specifically. So that initiated me into doing deep work around my core attachment with mom, healing that relationship um, and creating the no man diet container to heal the inner masculine, inner feminine poles within me. Because for so long, I was so disconnected from the feminine. It wasn't safe to be in my feminine or my vulnerability or my innocence or play or sensuality or sexuality or body. So in that container, what it did in removing all external distractions or sources of high or sources of, of safety and security, it, it pushed me so deep into look at, um, and heal and, excavate all the shame, so much shame, um, that was in the way of belonging to self. And that container was probably the most sacred container I've ever created and the deepest work I've ever done. And I highly recommend it (laughs) for for everyone because it's like, I don't think I would have been able to relate health healthily without really disconnecting all cords from an external source so that I could find my own internal source code or cord and be like, okay, I know I'm unconditionally okay. I'm fully present in my energetic sovereignty and I'm not seeking anything from an unhealthy place anymore. So from that place, then I can actually move into really harmonious, um, transactional or not even transactional, but yeah, sure. Clean energetic exchanges and move into the creation of community of, of harmony between the masculine and the feminine. But I've had to, I don't know about you, but I've had to process a lot of rage and a lot of grief towards the unconscious, um, (laughs) towards the system, but also towards the unconscious masculine. And the predator energy in our culture yeah. that has also been internalized by, by men and women. But for me, in my experience, it's been historically with men. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a nuanced space as everything mm-hmm. is. Um, <laughs> because I feel like, you know, I, I, I describe things sometimes as like, I feel like healing at first requires this like overcorrection in a way it's like, okay, I'm so dependent upon, I'm so, yeah, that I have to like run as far as I can in the opposite direction because it's like, it's a drug, right? It's like, we're not going to hang out at the bar if we're trying to stop drinking alcohol, which doesn't necessarily mean like you will never have relationships with men. Again, you will never be in a community again. Um, And I think I had to figure that out for myself because I think at first the, the desiring of a dependence or to figure out who I was, was coming from a sort of shame-based place of like, you failed in this way. And so now you need to, right. And, and I think that takes place a lot in, I feel like I see it cropping up a lot in social media and stuff like, you know, people that are like, I'm going to stop masturbating and I'm, and, and all of those kinds of things, or I'm going to stop drinking or I'm going to stop. And all of those things I feel like can be really healing and useful but I also feel like a lot of the time those things are done in the sort of self-hating, shameful way that just kind of per- continues to perpetuate the problem a lot of the time, you know? I do. And yeah. <clears throat> again, that's just more of the internalized supremacy dynamic. Right. Like there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I need to fix myself. And that's actually not the invitation that 
any of this work was. It's like, how do we shift from worthlessness to woundedness and looking at the wound? And that's why for me, the externalization of all of this has been incredibly important because it's removed it from this is all me to, oh, now I can see how these patterns have come down my lineage, or I can see how these patterns are interacting within all of us as we try to figure out this human dance while being potentially wounded and traumatized for various reasons, and then do the work to to name that, to heal it, process it, and then integrate it so that we can have healthier dynamics. Yeah. Like, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And the rage piece is, is super important, obviously. I mean, I think I, I went through this period of like deep, deep, deep rage and anger. I mean, I think a lot of that rage and anger is actually what fueled the creation of this podcast. It was just like, I have so much to fucking say (laughs) that like I haven't said in so long. And like, I'm going to, like, I didn't even care. I didn't care if anybody listened. I didn't care if it was successful. It was just like, there is so much built up energy here that if I don't release this in some sort of like a healthy, constructive, authentic way, like, I mean, I was, I was like, bur- like burning up as far as my health was concerned. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, I was yeah. like on fire. Um, and I had to let that out. And I remember, I feel like I, I felt very aligned within that rage, but also a little bit afraid of it and mm-hmm. afraid that I'd never move beyond it or, 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 you know, get anywhere. And I remember my dad said something really interesting. He's like, you know, you're, th- the anger feels so comfortable Anya, because it's probably the most authentic expression of emotion that Mm. you've felt in your entire adult, your entire life, not even just adult life, you know, Uh, like that is so true to Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. so deep that you're holding on to it and it feels good because it's, it's real. It's not fake. It's not constructed. It's not Mm. someone else's. Um, and I do feel like I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, as far as like blame and responsibility are concerned, because I do think not that the rage, I mean, the rage is still there. The rage still fuels me, I think in lots of different constructive ways. But I say like, I've always said that I feel like anger is a bridge, not a parking lot, (laughs) that it like gets you to where you need to be. And there was definitely... I don't know about a transition because I feel like I was like cycling. I am cycling through these emotions about a lot of different things all the time. But as far as like an overall transition for me, um, where it was very clear to me, like the anger and the rage, like got me to a place where I could set boundaries and protect myself and know who I was and know what my own intuition was saying versus someone else's. Um, And I sort of always like when I feel those feelings now, it's like, oh, okay, like I'm going to get on this dragon and like allow it to take me to whatever destination we're going to, if that makes sense. That's exactly how I would define my my own relationship with, with rage or anger. And, and this is a new emotion for me. I have not had access to it, um, for probably for probably to only two years now have I actually been in conscious relationship with my, my anger and my rage. It was so repressed because I was so frozen that I couldn't access it to set boundaries or to have any agency or to have any assertion over my needs or my, yeah, my boundaries to keep me safe. So, um, 
that's important for all of those pieces of sovereignty and also just to know yourself and to trust yourself to have that self-protective anger on tap. Um, in terms of blame and responsibility, like I think, I think everybody has to take, um, responsibility, of course. Um, I think blame, shame, resentment just keeps us stuck in an internalized parent child dynamic where we're not actually allowing ourselves to grow and complete the initiation, which is what is it that we're here to learn? Instead, we're like internal father or mother shaming, blaming the inner child, or that's, you know, being projected outward and we're shaming, blaming. And it's like, we're, we're keeping ourselves stuck in a very, um, hierarchical dance with other and self, because that's what we're used to in this culture. And for me, it was like, yeah, I can sit in that and have, it can be a both and it can be what happened was wrong. And what is the invitation on my side? Or what was my, not only what, like, what was my role, of course, like energetically, but also what is my new bar of integrity for moving forward and boundary or. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like I just had a flashback to like, we talking to you the first time we did this around like that accepting responsibility does not mean accepting blame right? That we can take responsibility. We can, you know, that like empowerment and victimhood can't necessarily coexist. You know, Mm -hmm. we we have to take responsibility in order to be empowered. And it's interesting to me because I feel like I'm seeing, I'm curious about your thoughts. I, I was fully, when we were talking, I think talking about our own personal experiences with this. And it's really interesting to see how this is playing out, I think, collectively as well in movements, you know, (laughs) like where, where is that intersection between victimhood and empowerment? Like, where are we using shame and blame and anger as a strategy? Uh, where are we not taking responsibility? Like, these issues are so complex. So complex. I mean, yeah. even diving into that conversation, I mean, it's just like the 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 layers and nuance that are present. But again, for me, it goes back to it goes back to somatic work. Like it right. goes back to attachment. It goes back to looking at um, the baseline, the nervous system health. And we're all trauma bonded, even in movement spaces. You're seeing so much of this. And it's like, we're not getting anywhere operating from the same place that created the very trauma we're trying to climb out of. Yeah, And that's like the victim, right? This is like this dance. And of course, the rage and the pain and is all valid. But I might like I'm wanting a deeper a deeper invitation to get beyond the surface other external and to go and do the, the work internally as well. Don't worry. Like there is also an external component, but there's also this, like, how do we use that energy to actually create regulation in our own nervous systems and to increase our capacity right? for everyone? Cause I believe the revelation, the revolution will be regulated. I think the most powerful person in the room has the most capacity, the one who can actually be still amongst the chaos. Like it's like the Grand Canyon, you know, can you embody the Grand Canyon? Can you hold that much without being activated? That's true power to me, you know, but when you're reactive and you're like, 
I mean, that's not really power. That's just like spinning out. Right. But like somebody in their power is centered and anchored and not necessarily caught up and, and hooked in and pulled down this road and pulled down that road. And you're like, okay, like that's going nowhere for you. And that's not actually anchored in a place that can, can facilitate sustainable change in the way that I think our planet needs. Totally. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is where I, one of the many ways that I feel like my opinions don't align with like Jordan Peterson, for example, of um, categorizing the feminine as chaotic, because I think Mm. it's sort of inherently, I I understand, I feel like where he's going Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. and why he's saying that. Um, But I do feel like the empathy and the stillness and the trust and you know, maybe it's the fluidity that he's seeing is, yeah. is chaotic to some extent. But I do also feel like if we are going to have a revolution, if we are going to change the balance of quote unquote power, mm-hmm. it isn't going to look like the same situation flipped. It's not going to look like, right. you know, the same injustice just happening in the opposite direction, exactly. you know, yeah. which is hard. And which is, I, I get this because we are we have so much pent up rage and anger. We have so much trauma we haven't processed. And so I feel like our, you know, it's hard because I just, I feel so much empathy and understanding for why we're in the predicament we're in. But like, we really, for me, it's like all I want to do in every circumstance is I just ask myself, like, what is the most healthy sort of like embodied feminine uh, reaction to this problem. Mm, Um, Yeah. What a beautiful question. Cause the feminine can also be fierce and very clear. Yeah. Does not, it's not like all chaotic. And this is, I think one of the potential ways that I think women, but also the feminine is gaslit in our culture is like, Oh, she's just chaotic or she's like, and it's like, uh, no, there's a reason for that. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like, mm, no, I wouldn't say that that's actually, um, a deeply anchored feminine experience. Right. Cause I don't consider myself chaotic at all. And I consider, but what, what I'm seeing, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I don't know. I could talk to you for days, but yeah. like <laughs> as the fierce feminine is being embodied and it's really rising with like some serious heat, it feels like for me. Um, and for a lot of women that I, that I interact with, it's inviting the masculine and men specifically to, and also women to, to get back into their bodies yeah, and to feel. And that's deeply terrifying because it's, it's an invitation to release the control of logic, of reason, of, of mind and go into feeling, go into feminine, go into that deeper, darker water that maybe, they've been too afraid to, or there will be a dissolution or an ego death in that process. So I understand the fear or resistance to this, this uprising because it's, it's a death to, to not only the system and the way it is operating, but also to the false power and calcified ego structures that, that need to need to dissolve. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very, I think bodily embodied process. You said something I was listening to you recently talk about 
I think sort of discernment, um, uh, learning how to discern through one's own body, not necessarily through like what someone is saying or what you've read or just really like feeling like what is in, what is in integrity with me and what is not. And you said something like, I felt it in my womb. And it was such an interesting thing where like, you're saying this and I'm hearing what you're saying in my womb. And I was just like, yes, like (laughs) I totally like that. It's, it's there. And I think it's always been there. I sort of always like Mm, describe intuition in my past as like a floater in your eye. It's like, you always kind of know (laughs) it's like sort of there in your peripheral vision. But like, if you don't focus on it, it's really easy to ignore it. But in all situations where I've been in in a situation that was like harmful or abusive or just unhealthy, I, there was something there. I can't say I was totally oblivious. Like I always knew on some level, but it was, it wasn't above ground. Right. Um, And that's it. Yeah. Not above ground. Right. And I feel like learning how to bring that above ground, learning what discernment feels like, what yeah. intuition is, and trusting that um, is so, so deep. And I do think the feminine has been just grossly hurt in that way. Like, we don't know what intuition is. We don't value it. We don't, we don't know what self-trust is. I mean, you don't know yourself and you don't trust yourself then how can you even consent to anything? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Seriously, but that's that's actually such a beautiful point you're bringing forward. I, what came through, I think it was yesterday, is like a frozen body is not a consensual body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, it's not though. Like it's yeah. not embodied, but you're right. Like how can you have consent? You're not even in yourself. Right. Like, and I know this is like a huge topic and can bring up a lot of grief, but it's like, we really have to do that work to really come back home to the body and to, to self-trust and self-agency and, and a deeper level of attunement with the instinct and intuition that has been severed um, in our experience because our life actually depends on it. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> it's like we could seriously record 10 podcasts. I, know. Um, I do want to talk, if you have some more time, yeah. um, about narcissism. Because I feel like this is so top of mind for me right now. And I know you've been talking about it a lot recently. And, uh, and yeah, I just, I feel like, again, it was something that I was very much processing and understanding Mm -hmm. from a personal perspective Mm -hmm. and then sort of seeing it play out in the collective. I mean, and this can apply to like, I feel like our politics right now, I feel like there's this whole like, guru thing i feel like it's tied into the me too movement this like fawning over narcissists thing is so compelling and so prominent and i feel like so integral i mean i know you briefly mentioned it before but i'd love for you to expand upon it like how that relates to this feminine lack of feminine embodiment Oh, I have so much rage around this specifically yeah. right now. And I think I have so much rage because I've, I've done it my whole life. Right. I've fawned over the, Me the, too. <laughs> the narcissistic, all powerful male. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking actually when you look back over the timeline and been like, wow, I can't believe that. Um, I have a, I, it's so underground, truly like this fawn response of a pedestaling of um, idolizing of 
of placing somebody else who's in that power position um, on that pedestal within ourselves, which keeps us again, small um, and sourcing something from the external and utilizing that power dynamic to keep us in the same spot. Um, I think that this, I think this is just an overlay of the culture we live in and the supremacy culture is, is this is the Stockholm dynamic I'm talking about. Like the wounded masculine or the inverted king archetype has been sourcing attention, validation, energy from the wounded and exploited feminine. And you see that in so many subtle and not so subtle ways, especially in our culture. And it's time to stop idolizing the narcissist. It's time to stop feeding or hooking into the energy vampire so that they lose supply and actually either do the work to, to really heal what's underneath that pattern of behavior um, because that's keeping us all unconsciously enslaved to a psychopathic, sociopathic, narcissistic consciousness. Which, by the way, I think, and, and until we actually look at this, predatory capitalism, it breeds that, though. Like, right. yeah. it breeds that type of person because to be um, worthy or to be successful or to be um, somebody who is all-powerful, you have to disconnect from the feminine. You have to continue to ride the waves of greed, ambition at all cost to other humans, to earth, to body, to community. And it's all about me, me, me. Right. And I think our culture does a really good job of breeding those narratives in every area, like self-development, rugged individualism, like, and then uses shame to keep us being propelled on this rat wheel that keeps us more focused in I and less focused in we. Right. Um, I'm not as well versed in, in narcissism as, um, as many. I know that. But what I've realized is how subtle those tactics of narcissism, like so gaslighting um, and um, like a lack of emotional or sexual boundaries they're all stemming from just a, a complete dis well from from my lens is a complete disembodiment from from themselves from right. their sexual and sacred sexual organs where it's like there's just energy cords going everywhere out to source validation to source um power and unfortunately because of that fawning we keep feeding because we're, we're traumatized. We're in that trauma pattern. We're in that trauma bond with that, with that energy. And until we unhook from that energy, which is why I recommend all women <laughs> to go in a container <laughs> to unhook from that dynamic, do we keep attracting that or keep feeding it and allowing it to run rampant on every single level of our, of our lives and our culture? Yeah. Yeah. And it so does come back to, I mean, if you're going to talk about like, well, how is it that all these people are voting for someone that clearly does not have their best interests at heart, right? It's like this bizarre, like we have such a hard time understanding how that could be humanly possible. And to me, it's like, well, because 
intuition and trust in oneself is completely absent. And that's not obviously like we're talking a lot about femininity, like femininity exists in both men and women. So it's not just like women are perpetuating this. This is perpetuated collectively that the reason this is happening or the reason that people, you know, give themselves away to these gurus and give all their money or give their bodies or like are sexually abused. It's not like they knew it was off and they did it anyway. It was like, there was so much disconnection from knowing what was good or not that that's why it's happening. Well, that's, and that's just it is like, there's been a collapse. We've confused abuse with love. Right. Like we really, in our culture, we, we think that that attention or that, um, that exchange is love. It's not actually at its core. It's not love. It's manipulation and it's exploitation and it's incredibly toxic and dangerous, but I don't, you don't really see a lot of integrated, liberated relationships or models of relationship modeling a different dynamic, you know, in our culture. Have we? Not really. No. You know, so it's like, we're kind of like, okay, well, what's the next reference point? We don't have it really. And we're trying to find it, I think, by, by birthing it, I guess, if you will of letting yeah. it be an emergent form and, de- and union between the masculine and feminine principle within. Right. And, and it's, it's, you know, obvious to me too. I was recently listening to the polyvagal podcast yeah. because a new name now, but it was, he was going through, I think it was narcissistic personality disorder and listing these sort of traits and the fuel for them. And I swear every single one of them could have been applied in the inverse to someone with like a fawn dynamic and it's like because it's the same trauma it's It's the the same same pain right same pain and and so we're just like locked in like we're both just seeking love and admiration and approval and one person's doing it through sort of like self-victimizing I mean it's both self-victimizing it's hard to even distinguish but Mm -hmm. these are two different dynamics like that's all that's going on right now is that we're all just so fucked up and traumatized and trying to perpetuate patterns that feel familiar, but aren't necessarily healthy. Yeah. It's like trauma bumper cards. And, you know, I love what you just described. You're so well articulated on this and everything you talk about. It feels familiar. And that's the part that's confusing is because we, we have nothing to differentiate from. Right. And so when we're met with something that's not, a part of that kind of fawn narcissist pattern or empath narcissist pattern, which is the same wound underneath and the same pain, then that person becomes activated and it like starts to kick up their trauma. It starts to kick up all the stuff that you're not willing to, you're not willing to engage or hook in in the same way. So either that person does the work to, to, to heal and to integrate or, you know, you move away. Right. right. So it's like, but if you notice yourself in those patterns, like there is work to be done. And for me specifically, and, and kind of climbing out of them and so subtle and all these layers is um, once you're do trust yourself 
and you do have self like somatic sovereignty and a level of attunement and discernment and you trust your body over anything in the external, um, then you, you're not, you, you can't be hooked in the same way. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It just doesn't feed you. It doesn't feel the same. It, it, and it, I've experienced this too, where yeah. it's like something is like, feels so intensely. Like I so need to do this. I so need mm-hmm. to show this thing to someone. I so need to, I so need to prove to someone that I love them or prove this or save yeah. them or do that. And then like, but when that breaks, when you, because of course so much of that is just like an internal projection from past experiences. Um, once you unhook from that, it's always been so interesting to me to see how that desire, that need, that pull like fucking dissolves. And then not only does like your behavior dissolve in that way, but that dynamic in and of itself cannot keep going because right. it's a dance. Right. Exactly. You know? Which is so powerful that we have awareness around how it can shift and how it can dissolve. And yeah, it's so beautiful to watch it dissolve, even though it's painful in the process of really doing the deeper work to unhook from that and heal from those, those trauma wounds or a lack of connection to self or lack of trust in self. Um, But the attunement piece, I know for me, when this really anchored in was when I set a devotion to my womb and was like, I will no longer make any decisions that are in violation of you. Uh, okay. Like now integrate that one and live that one out. But like for so long, it was just like, you know, for me and the plot, the pleasing or the fawn response, like didn't really matter, you know? Yeah. And so when I sat, I sat in ceremony in April and one of the, one of the guides said, we're so hyper-focused in, in the Western culture on the mind, all narrative belief, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. Um, But they're like, to have internal order, like you need to be in internal order from like the womb up, like the womb is informing the gut, the heart and the mind. So you can do all the belief work in the world, but if you're not connected to your womb and, and in ter- like in reverence or in relation, right relationship with it, then there's going to be a, a discordance or a lack of um, harmony. And I think wombs specifically on this planet have been, um, degraded. And I think both by women and also by men and however you identify on the spectrum, but like we haven't necessarily met each other from a space of reverence in the sexual arena as well on this planet. I don't think in a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think circling back, that's where I feel like community and support has to come into play so prominently because I feel like at the core of all of this, at the core of getting in touch with ourselves, our bodies, our wombs, et cetera, you know, there is such immense grief in like, I feel like there's so many different layers of it, but if I had to kind of summarize it in some way, realizing that I, I had to sort of learn how to love and how to receive Mm -hmm. love or learn what love was 
like the grief of not knowing that or not having, having had that at least not in a while. Right. I'm sure it's yeah. somewhere obviously in my core, but in my experience and my mother's experience and her mother's experience, yeah. just like going down the line, that was the, that was just so incredibly sad. Mm-hmm. And I think you, it's so much harder. I mean, I think for a lot of these like dark night of the soul periods or the one major one that I was in, I was very much alone and I, and Mm. I did it and it was okay. And I had just enough support, I feel like to keep going into the depths, but you know, we have to be able to hold each other in that process and, and to recognize that in holding someone else in that process, like you are also going to go through you have to, you know, you're not just a blank. I've wall. noticed that. I've yeah. noticed that the more I bring or the more I cultivate sisterhood and the more I'm in sisterhood around certain top, like we're all going through it together. And it's like maybe one person or one woman is like two steps in front of the other, but like we're right there. And it's like, we kind of all hold keys to each other's liberation. And so like right. having these conversations and being in community is hundred percent necessary. Like that is the only way that there's enough capacity to actually move through and process what we're carrying, I think. So I agree with you a hundred percent. Like, yeah. Vital. And it's vital. It's it's comforting. You know, it's like, it's so nice to be like, oh my gosh, thank you. Like, yes, her experience is hers and that's Mm -hmm. her life. And she's coming at it in her own unique way. But just to like feel that we're all vibrating on the same frequency Mm -hmm. is just like, Oh man, that feels like so nourishing and good. It feels so good. It feels so good. And then we also have to, you know, I think, you know, you said something earlier on the podcast and I just want to name it. It's like, we can't get caught up in gender wars. You know, I'm so, I, I, I hate these agendas that are so like divisive and fit perfectly with our trauma templates. And it's like, no. Like we're, I don't want to be at war, like war consciousness with anything or any, like I'm over it. And like me in my dreams, I want to, I'm like jump on a dragon and I just start fire. Like, I'm just like so over it. Yeah. I'm like, wake up. (laughs) Not from like a superior place, but I'm just like, can we climb out of this already? Like, you know, when you wake up on you and you're like, the world does not mirror back to me what I know is possible. Yeah. And that's what it feels like. There feels like. Like a constant, like, what am I living in an alternate reality? Like, no, this is our reality. Can we anchor something in, you know, together vibrationally um, or, you know, not to get, not to bypass the work we have to do to even get there. But like, is there a community or a group of people? And I know there's tons of them anchoring in a new way. Right. Or an old way. Who knows? Yeah. I think clap yeah. the time all together. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I definitely feel that same. There are certain things, especially certain movements that I feel especially infuriated by because I feel like we're so close. It's like, we're so close, but like so far at yeah. the same time. Right. Um, and yeah, I just want to kind of shake everyone and I'm like, okay, Anya, like take that and do something constructive with it. <laughs> um, don't burn everything down on a dragon, which I also fantasize about. Yeah, me too. Um, so good. Uh, anyway, this was so wonderful. I hope other people enjoy it, but honestly, like I'm I, just happy we talked. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm always so grateful to be in conversation with you and yeah. listen to how you so beautifully articulate, uh, 
the systems in the world that we live in. It's really inspiring. So thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you. The feeling's mutual. It's nice to, even from afar, just feel like we're in the same yes. bubble. In a we way. are. <laughs> same, same womb cocoon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so for listeners that don't know, um, if you could tell people where to find you and learn more about you. And then I know I asked you this in the first podcast, so I'm going to ask you again, but okay. if you could recommend a book that everyone should read. Mm, that has yeah. been really meaningful you in the past couple of years or so. What would it be? Mm. One of the books that really helped to validate everything that we shared in this conversation is called The Patriarchy Stress Disorder by, by Dr. Valerie Rain. Uh, it really named a lot of the patterns uh, that that I, I that I named for myself, but also that were brought up in conversation. And it's not; it's all trauma informed. So it's mm-hmm. so beautiful. It's not about creating more division or that it's just like, no, how do we all climb out of this together? Um, so I'd recommend that book. The best place to find me is on Instagram still at being is beautiful. Perfect. That's, yeah, that's all. That's all. That's all there is. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Love. So good to see you. Hello again, everybody. Thank you for listening to that conversation. Highly recommend going to follow Kylie on Instagram. If you don't already, she posts so many juicy bits of truth. I love it. Um, And especially if you're a woman, just sort of being able to be even in virtual community with other women who feel the same is super, super powerful. Um, If you would like to support the podcast and you have a few extra bucks to spare each month, go over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. There, uh, dependent on how much money you're willing to give, there's all different kinds of perks. There's a bunch of playlists, um, that Geminid Meteor Shower, Meteor Shower song I played at the beginning is a part of a playlist that I posted recently called Head Trip, which is available. The playlists are available to subscribers at all levels. Um, so there's lots of playlists. Um, when you go up a level, there are WhatsApp group chats, um, groups of 30 people on WhatsApp where you can talk to listeners, get support, compare notes, ask me questions directly. Um, and then there's the book club club. Like I mentioned, the first one just finished, but the next one will be in October, I believe, because it was so fun and I don't really want to read books by myself anymore, to be honest. Um, I was kind of fearing that the whole process would be super overwhelming, but it was actually a lot more meaningful and nourish than nourishing than I could ever imagine. So I think I'm going to do the next one in October. Patri- uh, patrons get to choose which book we read, which I would like to keep to, at least for now, books that um, podcast guests have recommended. On that note, as a patron, you also get access to like a master list of all the books that the previous podcast guests have recommended. So Lots of stuff on Patreon, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Another free, very easy way to support the podcast is to go into iTunes, um, either on your phone or on a computer, uh, pull up the podcast, hit subscribe, and then scroll down past all the episodes, leave some stars and a review. That helps the podcast reach more people, and it also makes the podcast look more legitimate. So when I reach out to people and beg them to come on the show, they actually feel like it will be worth their while. So it all benefits you in the end as well. Um, and if not, uh, just listening is so helpful and means so much to me and sharing an episode or the show with someone that you care about is also fucking amazing. Um, just the fact that you guys are there is so cool and feels so supportive even from afar. So thank you. 
Um, I'm going to play you out today with uh, Back in My Body by Maggie Rogers because how could I not? It just seemed like the right song to play. So enjoy and uh, cannot wait to bring you more of these amazing conversations that I've been having next week. Maybe less than a week from now. You never know. Maybe it'll be two weeks though. You know, don't want to like raise the bar too high here. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Thank you.